Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. The band Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, OMD, had a huge hit that came out in April of 1986 called If You Leave. And whenever I hear that song, it takes me back because that was my final semester of my senior year in college. And it played all over campus, and it was a time... And I just remember that time. Even when I hear it now, it's crazy. I remember we were we were excited, we were scared because we were going into the real world, and we knew we were going to lose contact with like ninety percent of each other because it wasn't like now where there was social media. Back then, if you didn't get a phone number, you were screwed. And my guest sang that song, and he wrote that song. And my friends saw them at the Keswick Theater a week or a week ago, I believe, and I couldn't go, and I'm so pissed because I heard they were amazing. And my guest is Andy McCluskey. How you doing, Andy? Steve, great to talk to you. Yes, I'm doing really good. Thank you very much. That was a very nice introduction. <laughs> well, it's it's funny because you know I get to interview a lot of people uh, from your from the time you you know your 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 contemporaries and peers, and and I don't know you probably know this and you've probably been told how much that music meant to so many of us because I'm 58 and that was like my that was like those songs just it was a new it was a whole new scene. I mean. What goes through your mind when people tell you what, what your songs mean to them? You know, it, it, obviously we make the music for ourselves. It's our conversation with ourselves. We have had an amazing career. I mean, it's been 42 and a half years now that we've been in orchestral maneuvers in the dark. But um, I find that one of the loveliest things is when somebody does take the time to come up to you or write to you and say something that you created speaks to me and reminds me of my wife my son my mother who's passed away whatever you know the, some small part of what i did my three or four minutes long is indelibly grained into people's lives in very and often very beautiful and, and and sentimental ways and and that is is something beautiful when you realize that you've been able to do that now, tell me about the song, If You Leave. It was on the soundtrack, and it's funny. I, I'm always mad. I'm still mad at my friend, Benny. He was from Hong Kong. He was my roommate in college, and he stole that soundtrack from me, and I never got it back, and I'm still pissed at him. Right. But uh, tell me tell me about that song, because I, I know you wrote it for the movie, but I know there's a whole story I know, but can you, can you explain it? Yeah. Um, what most people won't realize is that um, we got asked quite early on to do a song for the movie. We went down onto the set, uh, to meet John Hughes, and we met uh, Molly Ringwald and John Cryer. Um, and, you know, we were told exactly we want a song for the prom scene, where they're all dancing, and this is what's going to happen. And the, the, the only parameter really was that we were told it had to be 120 beats a minute because they filmed people dancing uh, to Simple Minds' Don't You Forget About Me, which, of course, had just been in the previous John Hughes movie. So that was the, that was the only parameter, but we knew we knew what was going to happen. Anyway, we wrote a song. We come back a few months later, ready to start touring. We've got our two-inch multi-track ready to mix it in Los Angeles. We have two days off before the gig starts, and uh, we get a message from John saying, "Listen, I love that song, but we test we test screen the movie, and the teenage girls don't like the ending because the ending was different to the ending that everybody knows from now." Originally, the Molly Ringwald um, character, Andy, ended up in a romantic relationship with Ducky, her friend. And all the teen girls are, no, no, he's her friend. She needs to end up with the good-looking guy. <laughs> so they reshot the end of the movie. And lyrically, our song didn't make sense. 
So John says, um, can you do me another one? And we're like, seriously? We've just arrived. We've got no equipment. And our manager said, yeah, 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 they'll do it. And we went, yeah, okay, we will do it because we really wanted to be part of this movie. So, we, yeah, we rented a studio in Hollywood, Larrabee Studios. We rented a load of equipment that wasn't ours, and we went in. And off the top of our heads, we wrote If You Leave. We, uh, we sent a, a cassette of the rough demo at about 3 o'clock in the morning on a motorcycle over to Paramount Studios to be left for John to use. We went to bed, and a couple of hours later, we got a phone call from my manager saying, yeah, John loves it. Go back in the studio and finish it. And we were like, oh, God damn, we only had two hours sleep. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's how lucky we got with that song. Now, what was your writing process back then? I'm sure over the years, <coughs> the writing process has changed, but how has your writing process been? Like, in, in your early days, did you, like, on that, you were under the, under the gun because they said we need it done. But would you take a long time to do it or would you just sit there and go, okay, this makes sense? What was your process? Actually, well, If You Leave was very unusual because we didn't have much time and because we didn't have our usual equipment. Um, we wrote it in a very strange way, which is Paul sat down at a piano and started playing some chords and I started trying to imagine a vocal line. So a very traditional way. We never, ever, ever write like that. That was the only time we've ever done it. When we started out, because there was only two of us, uh, we didn't have a full band. We used to we used to put stuff onto tapes. We'd put like a little drum pattern onto tapes or something. We all built an electronic drum kit because he was an electronics student. And um, so we wrote in a very linear way, literally right up until uh, 1983, 84, when we got our first computer. Everything was written onto tape in a very linear style. So most of our songs kind of have a chord sequence that repeats. Enola Gay is the same four chords all the way through. Um, no, it, it was really, uh, that, that was how we did it. Uh, everything was written onto tape, and it was a very unusual way of working, but it was the way we had to work. Once we got computers, then it became a bit like... <clears throat> kind of like a word document editing you know you can edit pieces and take them and move them around so then we got a little bit more flexible but we've we've always written using machines and the bottom line basically is that um it takes as long as it takes some things happen like that and you got it in a, in a couple of hours but that's when you're very lucky other things you know you'll keep going back you keep changing it and sometimes it will never work I've got stuff in my music computer that's been there for decades. I go revisit it from time to time, but you know, it's uh, you just keep you, hope, you keep hoping you'll recycle some idea along the way. Now, you know, you've you've been called electro pioneers, but as a kid, well, who were your influences? When did you know you wanted to get into music? Because you're not—I mean, I talked to older musicians who Elvis changed their life, but you're only a few years older than me, so it was a different time for music. I mean, as a kid, what made you gravitate towards music? Um, I liked music. It was never my intention to actually um, try to make a living out of it or to be a musician. Um, both Paul and I, we went to the same school, but we were in different year classes because he's eight months younger than me. We both discovered later in life that um, we both got kicked out of the recorder class. Um, little thing you blow into. Um, I don't know if they have those recorders in American schools, but every damn British junior school used to have a recorder group. And um, But both of us used to prefer to go and play football and never learned how to play the recorder. So for years, we, we both used the same trick. We sat on a table full of girls who did know how to play, and we mined. 
and we both got found out and kicked out <laughs> separately. Um, in fact, Paul Humphreys, Paul Humphreys still has a school report from when he was 10, and his class teacher says, Paul has absolutely no musical aptitude. <laughs> Which his mother kept framed, of course, after he became successful. Um, we started out, um, I had friends who were in bands, um, I, I got a I got a bass guitar with the money for my sixteenth birthday, and I joined uh, I joined some friends of Paul's who had a band. <coughs> Excuse me, but very quickly we realised that we actually had more in common than the others. I was already going to Liverpool with my paper round money and buying German imports, but I had a really kind of crappy old mono record player that was my mother's sixties record player. Paul had built himself a stereo. So I would go to his house, and we had this symbiotic relationship. I had the records, he had the stereo. And we would start to listen to things like Kraftwerk and Neu and other German bands, Cannes, and then uh, Velvet Underground and uh, Brian Eno. And so we started listening to stuff that our other friends weren't into, because in the mid-'70s, they were into like Genesis, the Eagles, Pink Floyd. And we started to have this alternative listening club and we just we just decided we wanted to kind of like have a saturday afternoon background music club where we would make weird music inspired by german electronic 70s music and that's how it started and for many years we just stayed in the stayed in his mother's back room on a saturday and then finally we dared ourselves to go and knock on the door at eric's club in 1978 where we used to go and see bands and say could we play one of your local artists Friday Thursday nights? And we thought they'd tell us to get lost, but they said, "Yeah, what you called?" And we went, "Damn, we haven't got a name. We've got better go to give a name." <laughs> and yeah, we that's that's how it all started. So it was just a hobby, just a hobby, Steve. We were going to do one gig to say we'd done it, and then we were going to go to university. So what changed? I mean, what changed is it was. I mean, and and thank God for all of us, it changed because <laughs> we don't know. You, you may have been university. We don't know what you could have done because no one known. But what what changed that? that thing of just saying we're, it's a hobby and we're going to go to university, there had to be something that changed everything. We, um, the, the club in Liverpool actually said to us that they liked what we did. Um, and would we like to go and play at another club in Manchester? They had a reciprocal relationship. So we're, oh, well, we'll do two gigs. So we went to a club called The Factory in Manchester. And we met the guy, one of the guys who was running it, called Tony Wilson, who actually was um, a local newsreader. Had he was on the local evening news, and um, we were a bit starstruck. But when we got back, we thought, "Hey, he sometimes has bands on um, on the TV." So let's so now we've met him. Let's send him a cassette and see if we can be cheeky and get on the TV. It was, it was, we were just blagging it, you know. It was just stupid. <laughs> Uh, and now, and now, now this, this, Steve, this is the best part of the entire story. We thought for years this was some kind of like apocryphal urban myth we'd heard. We finally met Tony Wilson's ex-wife and, and we said, is it true what we've heard? And she said, yes. She said, I got in the car one day and there was a, a shopping bag, plastic shopping bag, full of cassettes in the footwell and she said honey what, what what are all the cassettes and he said oh i'm going to take them to the to the dump uh it's just it's a bunch of cassettes of people who've sent in to get on the tv and 
we didn't know they were just starting a new record label. He said, I'm just going to dump them on the way. She leant into the bag, pulled out the cassette on the top, and she went, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. That's a strange name. She put it in the cassette player and started playing Electricity. And halfway through, she turned to him and said, that shouldn't be going to the dump. That's a hit. And he said, no, no, they played the club the other week. Eh? Hairy guys from Liverpool playing electronic music. It's not my thing, not much. She said, that's a hit. So apparently he leant over and patronisingly patted her on the thigh and said, all right, darling, I'll sign them for you. And that is how you get a record deal. And that happened. Yeah, that, that happened about a month after we played this one-off gig in Liverpool. And so we got offered to do a, 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 a record with Factory Records. Uh, totally by accident, we got fished out of the going to the dump bag. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you sit there out of nowhere, you get this record deal. You know, everyone says, you know, it's hard work and luck, and sometimes luck takes a big part of it. So what's going through your guys' mind? Because now you're like, wait a second, you know, we're going to do a hobby. Now we have a record deal. I mean, where do you, where do you start? Where, what is your goal to get that record done? Um, to be honest, all we wanted was just to have a record. You know, I mean, I remember when Electricity was released and we had the seven-inch single in the fabulous Peter Savile sleeve. It was iconic at the time. Um, and... We were just like, oh, my God, you know, because I was 16 and Paul was 15 when we wrote that song. By the time it was released, I was, how old was I? 19, maybe just turning 20, just about to turn 20, and Paul was 19. And it was just great to have a record of a song we wrote when we were kids. You know, that, that was all we thought we were going to get out of it. But Tony, Tony Wilson was great at rewriting history. And when he met us again to offer us the contract... Well, actually, it wasn't a contract. It was just a handshake. Factory Records never had contracts. Um, he said, you guys are the future of pop music. And I think we swore at him using a word beginning with F and said, we're not pop. We're experimental. <laughs> uh, but he, he said, no, no, no. I'm going to help you get onto a major label. You guys will be on top of the pops within a year. Um, and we were like, listen, whatever, because we didn't think we were writing pop music. Uh, we re we released the record on Factory Records. It got played every night by John Peel, who was this iconic DJ on Radio 1 who played all the up-and-coming stuff late at night. And the next thing we know, we got a phone call from a, a lady who just started a new record label that was a subsidiary of Virgin. And um, she came down and sat on Paul, the sofa in Paul's mum's house and we played all our, our entire set of seven songs. And the next time we saw her, she offered us a seven-album deal. I mean, we were so lucky. It was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. How did you come up with the name? I mean, because it's one of those things when you, you know, I always think, I used to do stand-up comedy, and we used to talk about, you know, people with long names, it would be hard to fit on the board. You know, like, or, that's why, of course, RMD. But how did you come up with the name? Well, like I said, when, when, when the guys at Eric's Club, when we knocked on the door and said, hi, it's Andy and Paul, we've been in another band, a kind of prog rock band, um, said, can, can we come and do our kind of electric thing, just two of us and a tape recorder? And when they said, yeah, we, we were dumbfounded because we thought they'd tell us to get lost. So we went, oh, okay, um, listen, we haven't got a name. We'll phone, we'll go home and think about it. We'll phone you in an hour or two. We got back on the train and we went to, on my bedroom wall, I used to use my wallpapers like a notebook. I used to write everything down on the wall. And there was this, we said, let's go and consult the wall. There must be something on there we can call ourselves. 
And literally, I was. it was an idea for a song title or cast number that I think was supposed to be, you know, this is how experimental we were in the others. It was supposed to be some recorded war noises off the TV and some distort, some radios going tuning in. And uh, we went, okay, it's two of us with us playing electronic music with a tape recorder because none of our friends want to play with us, playing songs that even our friends don't like. Um, we need an unusual name. And it doesn't matter because it's only going to be one. And I just went, look, orchestral maneuvers in the dark. That was an idea for a crazy song. I mean, talk about freaking pretentious orchestral maneuvers in the dark. <laughs> uh, but we just thought, well, that lets people know that we're not punk, we're not rock, we're not disco, we're, you know, we're something different because we are. And and so that we just we just wanted a name that was kind of going to confound expectations, really, because we're forty two and a half years later, we're still stuck with it. <laughs> now, when that first album came out, it was nineteen eighty, I believe. What was the pulse? What was the pulse in England? The music scene. What was going on at that time for you guys? Well, what was interesting was when we when we played our first gig in nineteen seventy eight. I think one of the inspirations was we, we'd been in Eric's club. We used to go to Eric's club at least once a week because there was always cool bands playing there. And um, that summer, um, what we didn't realize was there were other people who were into electronic music. But as you alluded to earlier, without the Internet, you, you wouldn't know. Unless they were written about in the music papers, you didn't know they existed. Well, that summer, Human League released Being Boiled, their first single. And we were like, oh, wow. Wow, some, somebody else is into synthesizers. Wow, that's amazing. Wow. And then we were standing in Eric's club and we heard Warm Leatherette by The Normal, Daniel Miller, who created Mute Records. And that was it. We just went, okay, right, Paul, let's, let's at least, you know, there's people who are into what we're into. Let's at least go on stage and play one gig. So that's why we started. And then, of course, the next year, completely out of nowhere, because nobody had heard of it, Gary Newman, decides to go electronic and has two massive number one singles. And suddenly, um, well, all of the media thought he was, the, he was the leader of the pack. And everybody went, you know, when we released Electricity, they went, oh, you're copying Gary Newman. I'm like, no, no, we wrote that four years ago, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just haven't heard it yet. Um, <clears throat> so, and then, yeah, you know, like anything, once, once there's a, been a hit in a new genre, all of the record labels start chasing, and so yeah, we um, when our single came out, we you know we got people with this new label wanted to sign us, and 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 and, and you know within a year, uh, uh, March nineteen eighty, um, we we'd gone from Factory Records to releasing off the third single, Messages, which was our first hit single, and uh, and then suddenly. British electronic music came went from underground to dominating the charts all over the world within a couple of years. So how does that change your career? Do you sit there? Does a record label say, "Okay, we're going to put you on a big tour"? I mean, what was what happens with the live shows because you know they're so important, and and that was around the time I'm guessing MTV started. I know because I, I remember MTV was popular, but how did that how did that whole that explosion of the electronic music? How did that affect you guys with touring and just the promotion you got? It was still very old-fashioned. I mean, when we started, it was still a case of, like, you know, everybody read the music papers. There are none left now. 
I mean, I think you've still got Rolling Stone here, but all of the British music papers, one's gone online and the rest closed down. Uh, so, you know, you, you would find out from the music papers or see who was coming to town or, or you know, and, and touring was considered to be the way you promoted a record. If you were lucky, you might get on the, the few TV shows that was top of the pops if you were in the chart or the old grey whistle test that was more for the kind of album acts. And uh, yeah, we, 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 we played the old grey whistle test. We got onto top of the pops with uh, the third single and, um, and, and, it, and it just started to grow. And, so, and, then, and then, of course, the, we released two albums in 1980, which was crazy because we just had so much, so many musical ideas because you know, we've been writing these songs since we were 16. We had a backlog of ideas. And then the second album comes along and Enola Gay's on it. And that just smashed it wide open internationally. And suddenly, you know, Enola Gay sells five million copies of the single, and 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 we start getting gold albums. But um, but it was it, it 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 was radio play really was the thing that that that, that broke us out. Uh, touring, I mean, nowadays, you know, the funny thing is, touring used to lose you money, but it was to, the idea was it promoted the record. Um, Nowadays, touring makes the money and the records don't. <laughs> totally changed. Tell me, tell me about your experience on Top of the Pops, because, you know, to hear it's the comparable to, you know, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, you know, it was, it was for performers, you know, that was the big thing. What was it like for you to be on Top of the Pops? Because it's one of those shows that everybody knows, like any, everyone from England knows, and, and I'm sure every musician aspires to getting on that show. What was that like? Do you, do you still remember that day or is it something that slipped away in your memory because you have oh. so much stuff has gone on oh no i remember it we we were on tour we uh we just finished uh the european leg of the tour on the continent we were we were in the bus ready to drive back to get the ferry to come home and this guy comes running out of the hotel and we thought, oh, God, somebody hasn't paid the bill. Put your foot down. Let's get out of here. Um, and he goes, no, no, telephone, telephone. And um, there was a telephone call from the record company. And uh, our third single had had charted, low, but charted. Obviously, the Top of the Pops couldn't get anybody else. And we were 53 in the chart, I think. And they said, you're on Top of the Pops. You need to fly home now. Because in those days, the Musicians Union insisted that you had to re-record your song in case you'd use session musicians. So, um, yeah, first time I'd ever been in a plane. We, had, we went through the, um, the, the pretense of re-recording the song to prove to the Musicians Union rep that we could play it. It was all ours. And then we went on top of the pop song. And, you know, this, this iconic show, kind of like American Bandstand, really, but, but in England, literally, Thursday night, a third of the country would, would watch it. It would be like 20 million people watching Top of the Pop. So if you were on it, you know, you were going up the chart next week. And, uh, yeah, but it was, you know, we got there. It's like the stages were tiny in real life. They'd just been painted. They were sticky. Everything was held together by gaffer tape. And the whole thing was just, like, so underwhelming. You know, this iconic <laughs> program that we'd grown up watching. We were like, this is it. And the other thing is, because we, you know, we were a brand-new band and we just charted, they have a live audience and, 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 and you're standing there and you could, as, as, just before the, the host presents you, you could hear the kids going, who are they? I don't know. I never heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> so it comes big. Now, MTV, what, what effect did MTV have on your guy's career? Yeah, I can remember, 
um, being in New York in the early 80s when MTV started up, and we were taken down there, and we were told, oh, this is a new idea for a TV channel. It's going to be all videos. Um, and I must admit, I didn't think it was going to work. I thought, really? People are watching music videos all day long? Um, Got to remember, we, you know, music videos were made really by big, big, big international bands who couldn't go and do every TV show, like ABBA or Queen or something like that, you know. We only made videos when the song went into the top 40. And I remember when Enola Gay came out, it went straight in the top 40, and we were like, oh, we haven't got a video. Um, so we had to ru quickly run into the TV news studios in London against the green screen, played two hours. The video, I think, cost £1,500 for the biggest hit we ever had. And that was it. We just knocked off this quick green screen of these clouds behind us and us playing. But... Um, yeah, it transformed everything, you know. Um, and suddenly, people started really putting money in because they were like, no, everybody's going to see this. This is going to be your calling card to the world. So video started to become more expensive and, 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 and more complicated. Now, you said in your first time in New York, uh, when you were in New York in the 80s, when was your first time to America? I mean, was it because you said earlier you would not been on a plane and until pop top of the pops. But oh, yeah. What was your... First time coming to America, and, and what was your experience, and how excited were you? Well, two weeks after the first time I was on a plane, I was back down at Heathrow Airport to get onto a plane to come to America. Uh, we'd been told to phone the record company from the airport, so we did. And they said, yeah, yeah, don't get on the plane. Top of the Pops won you again. <laughs> so the day we were supposed to fly to the States, we had to do Top of the Pops, and we went the next day. Our record hadn't even been released in America. It was just some cool uh, agents or promoters in America. We, they got us in to play two nights at Hurrah's Club in New York, uh, uh, Boston, and Philadelphia. We came in. We had nowhere to stay. We had nowhere to stay, Steve. Um, so when we arrived in New York, the, the, the waitresses and their friends at Hurrah's all basically looked at pictures and went, yeah, he can stay with me, you have him. <laughs> That's how Paul met his wife, his first wife. <laughs> and yeah, we, we, and, and we, we played the night we arrived. So we went on stage at like 11 at night. It was four in the morning UK time. We were jet lagged to hell. But it was just like, you know, I never thought I was going to go to New York. I was walking around like a jet lagged zombie because a yellow taxi, a cop with a gun, a fire hydrant. Oh, my God. I'm an Empire State Building. You know, I, was just, I was in a movie. It was bonkers. Now, you know, as you're getting big, you know, your band's getting big and you're touring. What is that like? Because, you know, first of all, your live performances, as you said, you, you hadn't played a whole bunch yet. You were still new. I mean, what was it like? Were you, did you feel like you were getting tighter as performers every night because my friends saw you, which I want to talk about a little bit at the Keswick and they said your energy was amazing in Philly just a few weeks ago. And they said you were having so much damn fun, but what was it like in the beginning for you? Because you are the man up front. I mean, when did you start really getting comfortable with being that person? Oh, it took me years. It took me years. I was, I lived on my nerves when I was younger. I was very, very edgy. Um, 
And you've got to remember as well, what we were doing musically felt like we were swimming against the tide, you know. A lot of journalists just weren't ready for electronic music. We'd get bad reviews, not because of the concerts or the music, but just because we were playing electronic music. You know, it wasn't it wasn't rock and roll. It didn't have guitars. It wasn't sweaty and manly enough, you know. Um, but yeah, Paul we used to stand still. We went from a two piece and a tape recorder to a four piece in the, when the first album came out in, in spring 1980. And as Paul always says, yeah, I, I've spent 40 years overcompensating for his static performance, and I started to. <laughs> I started to dance on stage to prove to people that it wasn't robot music, it, it wasn't humorless and, and, and just intellectual, that it, it could be pop as well as, as, as something different. And, and yeah, um, we, we, over the years, we started to realize that, you know, I guess if people have bought a ticket, they like us. So lighten up. You don't, you're not fighting the audience. And, and I'll be honest with you, actually, six years ago, we, we toured with a, a fabulous band called the Bare Naked Ladies. And they are so damn funny on stage. We started to actually loosen up and make jokes to each other on stage. We, we, we actually learned some of our stagecraft from Bare Naked Ladies six years ago. But, um, yeah, it, it was a slow process. But, I mean, Paul used to be terrified. He never wanted to come out from behind his keyboards. It was because it was never, we never had aspirations to be pop stars. It was a hobby that just got out of control. Now, you had to do adjustments to it, you know? Now, what is it like you had said how, you know, the critics didn't like it, just not because it was just because it was electronic. What is that like? You know, you're young guys, you people are like your music, but the critics are being jerks. I mean, do you, did you let that get in your head or did you just say, you know, screw them? People are buying records. I mean, it must be hard as a performer when you know your product, your music. The quality is good and people like it, but it's just different. How do you combat? I mean, what do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, as Kraftwerk fans, we'd seen some of the crap that was written about them in the press, you know. And, 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 and the, you know, I loved Kraftwerk, and I used to get very angry reading reviews that were taking the mickey out of them or criticizing them because they were German and they played synthesizers. So, you know, we were expecting it. And you know, what you do is, you, you know, like you, you kind of you go through this kind of like cognitive distortion that allows you to function. You know, we all do that in d daily life. You know, when you read a good review, you go, oh, there's somebody who knows what they're talking about. And when you read a bad review, you go, yeah, dickhead doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> you, know, you just put it into your head context. So, yeah, we, we, we were for, for many years, the synth bands were swimming against the tide, particularly in America. American journalists were really slow. They, you know, they, they liked their guitar music. They thought it was, you know, manly to strut around with a phallic symbol in front of you and, um, uh, you know, and, and, and sweat. And uh, it was just, you know, it took, it took American journalists a long, long time. It did feel like a fight. Well, if you leave, when that, that was such a huge hit too, what is that like? When you're sitting there and you hear that song and you hear it everywhere back then because hits were played a lot. It wasn't like now. There wasn't serious radio. There wasn't, you know, XM. When music got on circulation, it was played all the time. And that's the only thing people could listen to. What is that like when, you, when you're hearing your song constantly? I mean, is, is it an exciting time or are you sitting there going, we, you know, we got to, uh, we got to do this shit again. We, we got to repeat ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's, no, it was it was exciting. Um, I mean, obviously, we'd had um, 
we'd had hits in Europe, uh, but the label we were on in America uh, didn't really seem to care about promoting us very much. They, they didn't put any effort in. So it was only when we moved label and we signed to A&M Records that we started to get some impetus. Because before that, we were just getting played on college radio stations and on a few of the kind of independent alternatives like WLIR in Long Island and K-Rock in, in, in LA. And, but the, most of the um, mo most of the main channels weren't weren't you know we weren't playlisted because we weren't charting and we weren't going to get playlisted. So I can remember driving around Los Angeles in a rental car and I put the radio on and if you leave was on it was like wow and I was like I was bored of it by the time I changed the channel. I was like oh my god it's on another channel and <laughs> click oh it click my god it's on four radio channels simultaneously you know that was when you went. We have a big hit, don't we? <laughs> um, it wasn't terrifying because by that stage, you know, we'd been in the band for eight years and we'd got used to the idea that the hobby had become our job. Um, and the funny thing is, when we sit down and try and write a hit, it's usually rubbish. So we'd, we could, there was no point sitting down trying to copy it, Julie. We, we just had to hope that something would come along and, and keep, keep the flow going. What was it like being a musical star in the 80s? Because it was, I mean, I, I went to college in there. And it, was, it was just such a different time. You try to, I try to explain to younger people what the '80s were like. And I see meet kids who went to my college, and I'm like, they're like, you used to have a bar on campus. I go, yeah, we had, you know. But what was it like? I mean, was it, was it? I know you when you're a star, especially back then, it's really grueling because you have to go to the radio in the morning, you have to do this, this. What was your guys' life like back when, when in that that peak? And did you ever feel yourself? burning out a little bit yeah i mean when you become internationally successful everybody wants you, you all the time and um you know you you get requested to be here there and everywhere i mean literally i i for, for years and years and years i lived in a suitcase i was never at home um if i was at home i, I literally do my washing and get back out again constantly flying tv radio journalists photographs back in the studio back out on tour back in the studio more tv more radio i mean it just basically if you were if you weren't asleep you were 24 7 omd or just constantly doing promotion or gigs or interviews and and then um but yes it does burn you out because uh, you know once you become internationally successful, everybody wants you on tour and you go around the world and American tours go from three cities to three months on a tour bus. And, um, and then you get home and you've been on the road for six months and the manager says, the record label want the next album before Christmas. And you're like, we haven't written anything. We've been doing interviews and playing gigs, you know. And particularly the way I was talking to you about the way we write music, it's not like you could sit on the back of the tour bus and strum your synth, you know. It was like <laughs> we, 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 couldn't, we couldn't write. We didn't have, but we didn't have time. And so, yeah, the, the, there, was, there was time towards the mid-late 80s when we started to feel like, you know, we, we would go into the studio for like six weeks and the first 10 things we wrote, be they good, bad or ugly, was going to be the album. And there was a couple of albums I look back now and I just think, oh, I wish we had more time because some of this wasn't good enough. We just weren't given enough time. Um, yeah, it, it, we got burnt out, definitely. Now, you disbanded at one point. 
is that just because I mean I, I think about it you guys were together for a long time and you shot up and all of a sudden you're big and it's changing times I'm sure as you get into the business more there are tensions happening but what happened when you first guys disbanded was there was there a certain reason what happened or was it just you guys wanted to go in different ways or you were just needed a break because you've been together it's like a couple that's been married for a long time mm -hmm. and they're with each other all the time it's got to drive you up the wall a little bit yeah everything that you just said that was what happened <laughs> um you know paul and i have been writing together since we were 16 we were now in our late 20s uh, the band had been together for almost 12 years. Um, we were exhausted. We'd sold millions and millions of records. And unfortunately, I mean, we weren't in it for the money, but unfortunately, because we signed such a bad deal when we were teenagers, we earned very little money. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, we earned very little money. So so we found, we, we discovered, and, and, and you know, by the end of the 80s, we owed Virgin Records a million pounds, even though we'd sold 30 million records. And it wasn't like we were driving around in Rolls Royces and we'd bought castles and yachts. They just, you know, we, they give it to you with one hand, they take it back with three hands. The royalty rates were so bad. And we had to pay for all the recordings and all the videos and everything. So we were tired. We were frankly fed up. We were sick of the sight of each other. We'd been on tour all over and over and over again. And and we had no money and, and and paul and i were always very different musically and he wanted to go here and he wanted the other two members of the band to get more involved and make it more of a democracy because we we knew we weren't writing good music but we didn't know how to change it and i said no no i, I think we want to go here and and we just we basically we got together in the studio one day and we said well you play me your songs and i'll play you mine and they were so different. And we thought, well, maybe you, you guys do one side of the album and I'll do it. And we went, no, no. I said, what, what, are we, what are we thinking? This just isn't working. And we just, we stopped. We now, stopped. That, that has to be scary because it, that's your identity. You know, it's like you are part of OMD. You guys have been together. And all of a sudden now you've stopped and you're not part of OMD. You're used to touring. You're used to 24 hours. You know, do you relax at first and go, oh, this is great. Then after a while, I'll go, holy shit, I miss performing. I mean, what what was those first, like that first year like after you guys disbanded? It was hell. I got really ill. Uh, everything I'd ever known in my adult life had been in orchestral moves in the dark. Uh, I, I basically, uh, it was the nearest I came to having a mental breakdown. I, psychosomatically, I got loads of illnesses. I, uh, I got pains in my throat. I got pains in my head. Uh, couldn't sleep. Um, yeah, I, w I was a mess. Um, and then it was... Then what happened was, a few months later, Paul came to me and said, listen, Paul, myself and Martin and, and Malcolm are three of the band. Uh, you know, there's value still in the name. We want to carry on as Orchestral Moves in the Dark. And, I, and that just made me feel worse. So I went I went to the label and said, can they do this? And the label said, well, contractually, we own the rights to release records by Orchestral Moves in the Dark. And you're the lead singer. Why don't you write some songs? And if they're any good, why don't you carry on as OMD and we'll back you? 
I was like, wow, okay, hadn't thought about that. Because I, I thought the band, the band had just finished, and it was Paul came and said, I want to carry on, that made me go, ooh, I don't like the idea of that. Um, so a few months later, yeah, I, I, I'd written a few songs, and I went to Virgin, and they said, yeah, these are good, let's do that. And, and, then, and then, unfortunately, they said to Paul, uh, we're going to drop you, Andy's going to carry on, it's going to be the other way, not the way you were thinking. And that, that must have been excruciatingly painful for Paul to... Um, to be told by a label that you know he that he'd worked for since he was 19 years old and made a fortune, that that for them, that he was no longer required. Um, and then uh, then we had to go through the legal business of you know how much is the name of the band worth? I had to pay Paul money to take his half of the name of the band. So there was lawyers involved. It wasn't much fun. Um, yeah, it was it was it was a year of horribleness. Um, and I was terrified. And, and when, when I released the Sugar Tax album in 1991, um, I, my name didn't appear anywhere on the record. I was hiding behind the corporate identity. I didn't want people to realize it was just me. <laughs> <laughs> and that album went on to sell as many as our Architects and Reality album and have some hits on it. So it was like great relief. But I was absolutely terrified. So... And it's funny, you know, when you see, when you hear these legal battles, I mean, I'm sure there's bad blood at the time, but then lawyers seem to intensify everything. You know, it's like, and the record company gets involved. So it's it's a hard time for both of you. You know, and you said Paul must have been very heartbroken. So how do you eventually come back to reform? How do you get back together? Because I always think, I always compare it to a couple who's been divorced, and then they come back years later and they go, Hey, you know what? We've been out. It was okay, but we really miss each other. How did the reformation happen? Once the new millennium came around, and we kind of what we realized that we were getting into this postmodern era where nothing was new anymore. And if you know, and, and in the '90s, we were perceived as a past their sell by day '80s synth band. But once you got into the new millennium, you know, postmodern era. If you had a catalog that was now deemed, you know, iconic credible people started to say well you know we'd like to see you play live and we got asked to do gigs and then we, we and electronic music was back in fashion and we got asked to produce other artists and so uh, paul approached me initially and, and i was busy writing songs I, I created a girl group that was very successful and i was having a great time doing that uh, and then a few years later i approached him and he, he was working with claudia brooken from propaganda who he also lived with and he said oh no we're busy doing there was never the right time and finally finally we got asked to do a tv show in 2006 in germany and i just phoned up the guys and said come on let's, let's go for a jolly let's go and do a tv show because the song made of orleon had been the biggest selling record in germany in 1982 and this was like the, this was a tv show called the ultimate chart show and they wanted us because for 1982 they needed to have the biggest hit so we went to Cologne, and, 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 and when the TV was over, I said, guys, listen, we, we were sitting in the hotel bar, and I said, listen, guys, they've flown us over to a four-star hotel. We're sitting in a bar. They're paying for our beer. We did six minutes' work yesterday, and we just did three minutes' work. Would you like to do this again? <laughs> the answer was a resounding yes. <laughs> you mentioned the girl band. It's the Tama Kitten, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. How did that come about? Because it's just so. Because once again, girl bands they come. I mean, it's been girl bands have had a weird thing. You know, like in America, we had the uh, the Runaways and the Go Go's and different things. How did you get involved with an all girl band? Was that your idea? Or did they 
find you because they knew your track record. No, it's my idea. Uh, no, it seems ridiculous, really, to, to go from, from a guy who was trying to be experimental as a teenager to manufacturing a girl pop group. But that shows how I changed. But, um, <coughs> excuse me, please. Um, when I realized uh, in the late, in the mid, mid 90s, really, I was banging my head against a brick wall. You know, uh, grunge and brick pop had come along, and people. I'd released a song called Walking on the Milky Way, which was one of the great songs I'd ever written, and the ra radio wouldn't play it. Um, so I just realized my, my hands were tied here, but I, I was conceited enough to think I could still write tunes. And strangely enough, my friend Carl Bartos from Kraftwerk, and I, and I often say that, yeah, Kraftwerk invented Atomic Kitten, and people are like, you're kidding me, don't Because I said to Carl, I said, I'm just going to write songs and give them to people, because I think I can still write songs. It's just the vehicle's considered past its sell by date. And he said, no, no, don't, don't be a whore to your publishers, because they'll just mess with your songs create your own vehicle for your own songs. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, what's the best kind of manufactured pop group? And I went, oh, three-piece girl band, you know? The Renettes, the Supremes, uh, Banana Rama, you know? The best manufactured pop is three-piece girl bands. So Carl said, well, create a three-piece girl band. So Kraftwerk created Atomic Kitten. And, um, yeah, and Stuart Kershaw, who's now the drummer in um, OMD, who'd worked with me on the Sugar Tax album in 91, uh, yeah, we, we, we advertised in the local Liverpool paper for girls. We found these kids who put their trust in us, and uh, we delivered for them. And in fact, I had my very first number one single in the UK with three attractive teenage girls instead of me singing. I should have worked that one out earlier, really. <laughs> now, you're back on tour, and I know um, in America, a lot of the 80s shows were big a while back. You guys were getting out more, doing more shows, and then the pandemic happened. What were you guys on the road? I've talked to some people who were like, they flew back to London, and then the pandemic happened. Like, where were you guys at when the when all this stuff started going down? Yeah, well, we we were we we were planning to come to the states because we were halfway through our fortieth anniversary celebration tour. Uh, which is the tour we're now doing to over two years later than it should have been. Um, so yeah, we everything stopped. Um, everything stopped for 15 months, and then things opened up a little bit. And, 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 and last summer we did a, a charity concert for our crew that got postponed twice because COVID went on and on and on and on. Um, and then you know, these different variants came along, and you know, it's been a long slog. And, and I think that you know. We weren't sure whether we should do this tour. I mean, we booked this tour so long ago. I think people have forgotten they got tickets in the draw, you know. Um, but we just decided to come and do it because we just thought we just can't keep putting it off. And I think there's, there's a little bit of COVID anxiety. We, we've seen a, a, a small percentage of people who have tickets not turn up. But, you know, maybe the babysitter got COVID. Maybe they got COVID. Maybe they just didn't want to stand in a room with 1,500 people that close. I'd like to, I understand if that's how they feel. But... But the tour has been great. It's so good to be back on the road. But yeah, I mean, we yeah we didn't do a gig for fifteen months, and it was a bit like, oh, let's get back on the bike and hope we can ride it. You know, what was that like? Your first night on stage after being away? Because as you said, it. I mean, you know, it's going to come back to you. But there's still. I I, I used to do stand up comedy, and I got uh -huh. booked to do a show 
open for a friend of mine, and I had been on stage for two and a half years. And I was looking at my like Fitbit before the thing, and my my heart's racing like a one fifty. I'm like, and I know I'll do fine, but I'm mm-hmm. but I'm sitting there like, oh god, what if my my foot's getting numb? I'm like, holy shit, what was it like for you that first mm-hmm. night? Where were you guys at, and and what was it like? Yeah, we 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 played uh, at the Indigo in uh, in London uh, just because the space had the equipment because it was very unusual because there was only 250 people allowed in the venue each two meters apart from each other so that was kind of weird it was a venue that held 2000 but there was only 250 in and there was i think in the end there was about six and a half thousand people bought the online to generate to give money to the crew that was how it was done that they were, they were going to give money to the crew um so they bought online viewing and and so it was kind of weird it was like you know we were playing to 250 people in a big venue, which felt weird. There was people live at home watching us. And then at the end of every song, the LED screens behind us lit up with, it, it, with, it was like a giant Zoom conference. There was all these faces. <laughs> and, and I was turning around going, oh, I know who you are. Oh, hi, how are you doing? Yeah, talking to you. And it was, quite, it was weird because right at the end of the gig, I turned around and I looked at the screen. I said, I said put as many on the screen as you can. I looked and I went, Surely somebody's having sex on the sofa. It's nobody having sex on the sofa. <laughs> but yeah, so it, it was it, for many different reasons. It was a slightly strange gig, but it was very enjoyable, and and it, and it raised money for our crew who hadn't done Now you're in America and you're touring, and now because you've been together, you've had so, you have such a big catalog of songs now of course you know you have to play if you leave you know all gay there's certain songs to play how did you how do you guys put your set list together and and do you do you change it at all or do you pretty much just stay to what it's gonna what it is mm-hmm. no we we tend to be um you know you're in a different city every night so you know 99.9 percent of the audience won't have seen you before uh, so once we get a, a running order that works, we stick with it. And um, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, we're celebrating our anniversary, so obviously we're playing all of the hits. But you know, we always do. I, I think that bands that refuse to play their biggest hits because they're bored of them or whatever excuse, I think they're shortchanging themselves and they're being disrespectful to their audience and they're being disrespectful to the song that's made them a load of money and helped their career. Um, so we always play our hits. But, uh, yeah, we, 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 there's a few little deep dives for the kind of hardcore fans and, and uh, a little bit of variation. Um, the great thing is, for the first time since we've come back to America, since we reformed, we've brought our LED screens with us. So we've got our film media behind us. So that it, it, it really looks like a, a real show now. It's not just us and the house lights. Um, and it, yeah, it, it's just it's just great to be to be back out on the road and the, and the gigs where you alluded to the fact that somebody saw us at the, the Glenside just outside Philly and uh, the Keswick Theatre and it, the, the tour is just great. The crowd vibe is amazing. Who decides what goes on the LED? When we reformed in two thousand and seven, uh, we decided to play all of our architectural reality album, and, and we were going to start with ten minutes of really ambient music. And it was me who went. I think we might need some screens for people to look at because they're going to get bored. <laughs> uh, so I have a friend who was a film director, and he 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 made a lot of content for us. 
Uh, and over the years, it, it's that content that's been twisted and messed with and bits added. Um, so, we, yeah, we've worked with some very good visual guys. The trick with a live video wall is not to have it so that it, it kind of, it just, it's a, it's a foil, it's a backdrop. People should not be watching the video screen. It should be a nice accompaniment because it's really about the people on the stage and the music and the, and the atmosphere. Otherwise, people will be sitting down with popcorn watching the film. You know? <laughs> you know, what is it, I'm, I'm going to wrap up soon, but what is it like when you see people who've been fans for 40 years, like me, as I said in the beginning. I mean, in college, I had, I had a, the parachute pants and the sort of the long, the, the Duran Duran hair, as we called it. Now I'm bald and you know, I'm wearing jeans. What is it? I mean, it, it must, be, must make you feel really good that these people, they still come out. And I know I've been to the theater at Keswick. You have the whole group of girls that just dance their asses off and they're just big 80s music fans. What, I mean, how does that make you feel when, you, you, when you're on stage? Do you see them? I mean, I know when, we, when you're on stage, we all look out, but sometimes you focus. How does it make you feel when you know people have been a fan of yours for 40 years? Being the lead singer, actually, is sometimes difficult because if you've got spotlights, it's like looking at a truck coming at you. You can't see anything other than these bloody spotlights. So having the LED screen behind us is good because it actually lights the audience, so I can see the audience. Um, do you know, the, 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 particularly in the States, the demographic of the audience is quite broad. You're absolutely right. There are people who've been fans for 40 years, and you can see them, and they're reliving their youth. Because, you know, again, going back to, you know, you talking about if you leave coming out when you were at college and you are just about to leave, most of the important music in our lives is that soundtrack that is the soundtrack of the journey from childhood to adulthood. They're, they're the ones that stay with us. They're the most powerful songs. And they remain with us until we die because they were the most important songs in our lives because we were journeying through that transition. But as well as seeing those people, there's, there's a lot of college kids. There's a lot of younger kids. Because I say, we're in this postmodern era now. You know, when you and I were young, a new thing came out, a new style came out, and that replaced the other thing. You know, oh, the 70s has replaced the 60s. Punk has replaced, you know, long hair rock. And then, you know, synth music replaced punk. And then techno replaced synth music. And then grunge came along. And, you know, there was always something new and everything went out of fashion. Nowadays, we're in this atomized postmodern. Nothing's new. So, and all these kids now can find this stuff Spotify, Googling, you know, they go down wormholes. And, and if you get into synth music, then you you invariably go and find Gary Newman, Human League, OMD, Pet Shop Boys. And younger generations go, I love this music. This is cool. They're playing in my town. I'm going to go and see. So, you know, we are seeing, we're seeing teens and students and all the way up. And it's great. I, I'm loving the fact that there are still the fans from all the way back, but there's a whole new generation. Last question. Now you're going, you're, you wrap up a U.S. tour, and then you go to Europe, okay? Mm -hmm. Which you're probably excited for because you're back on the road. But after that tour, what is the future? Are you guys going to make new music? Are you going to sit there and go, we're going to take a few months off, then tour again, knock wood that we can't, you know, that it's everything's good. But what is the future of OMD? 
Yeah, uh, well, yeah, right now for the end for the rest of this year up until September, we are basically everything. You know, all the gigs that got postponed, we're trying to do them. So everything, everything's kind of out of sync. We're mopping up all the things that we we should have done over the last two years. We go back to Europe. We're doing festivals. It's all festivals in Europe, which is great. I love festivals. You know, I just work on Saturday night and then I go home. <laughs> And, and they pay for everything. We just turn up for an hour, sing all the hits, and everybody has a great time. Um, one thing I did, I did reacquaint myself with during COVID, um, was the creative power of total bloody boredom. I was getting, you know, I'm I'm going to be 63 next month, and I was getting tired of sitting in my programming room, looking at my computer screens trying to fish in my mind and my heart and my soul for inspiration it gets harder and harder and um i really didn't think there would be another omd album but because of covid there is going to be one uh i had the time to write and paul gave me some things to work with which have been turned into songs um so yeah the the next thing is when we come off the road Paul is moving house again. He's moved house about four times during COVID. Um, he's got to rebuild his studio, and then I'm locking him in that studio because he has to start mixing. They're ready; it's ready to go. He just needs to mix the damn thing. And the plan is, it's going to be out early next year, and then you'll see us for a tour. And uh, it will be called the Bauhaus Staircase Tour because that's the title of the new album. See that, people? You heard that here on Cooper Talk. I want to thank Andy McCluskey. People, if you don't know OMD, what's wrong with you? Go up and look them up. Buy some of their albums. I call them albums. Uh, go to their website. It's omd.uk.com. Go see them. If you're in Europe, go see them. And, and what can I say? They're, they're a big part of a lot of our lives, and that's very important to us. And, uh, and if you want to listen to more of my show, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 900 episodes. Email me, cooper, coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at Cooper Talk. Instagram, I'm at Cooper Talk One. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.